we will move on to our Old Testament reading, which comes from the prophet Ezekiel, the 34th chapter. In your pew Bible, if you're reading there, it is on page 722. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country, I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountains and the heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pastures they shall be fed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured, I will strengthen the weak, the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of the pasture and a drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat and the lean sheep, because you push aside and shoulder and thrust all the weak with your horns 
until you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. He shall feed them, he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. This Old Testament lesson from the prophet Ezekiel really comes in four parts. There are two statements of coming judgment and then two promises of future hope. And this section of Ezekiel is centered around the shepherds of Israel. We all know the Bible is full of stories about shepherds. In fact, as far back as we can go in the Old Testament, there are shepherds. Um, Abel was a shepherd. Abraham had flocks. Jacob, we know, famous for working with sheep. Moses and David were taken from the work of shepherding to lead God's people. And over time, this word became applied specifically to the leaders of Israel. However, the word shepherd in the ancient world was actually very commonly used for monarchs, for leaders. Why? Because a monarch, an absolute monarch, has an incredible temptation to use their role, to use their position, to lord it over those they rule, to rule them with an iron fist, to rule them in a way that only benefits themselves. And so calling them to be a shepherd suggests their job is to care for those under them. And it's a good reminder to monarchs, to leaders, that they are to be shepherds, not tyrants. However, as we find in the prophet Ezekiel, living up to this call to be a shepherd for those in Israel, the priests, the kings, the Levites, was very rare. This focuses on the failures of Israel's leadership, and it's going to lead Israel to be destroyed and God's people to be exiled across the world. But there's hope, because there is a rescue coming for the people that they have abused and misled. There is a shepherd coming. So the first section of our text is verses 1 through 10. This is just a, a condemning of the shepherds of Israel. These shepherds apparently are in it for themselves. In fact, they don't even um, care for the sheep in a way that would just benefit themselves. They destroy the sheep to their own detriment. And they are certainly not accomplishing what God had set for them out to do. So these, these priests, these kings, aren't looking out for the good of the nation, for the people of God, but themselves only. In it, though, we do get a one verse that is a wonderful job description for shepherds in the church, pastors and elders. Verse 4, by negative example, tells us exactly what the job description of a shepherd would be. Because he says, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, with force and harshness you have ruled them. So we can see the kinds of work a shepherd should be doing working to help the sick, right? Working for those sheep in the flock who are injured, seeking the lost, bringing back those who have strayed, and doing so with gentleness and respect as Peter commands in the New Testament. 
I think this condemnation of the shepherds, though, should be truly terrifying because God announces to those leading his people, I am against you now. My goal is to destroy you. And that, that should be a terrifying prospect. It's then followed by a promise of grace in verses 11 to 16. Because God doesn't just say he's going to try and fix things. He's going to try and find better shepherds. He said, I will come and do the work of the shepherd. If you look at these verses in 11 through 16, the emphasis is over and over. I will do this. I will seek them out. I will come. I will be a shepherd. This is God speaking. And as we consider, this is in the section of Ezekiel, looking forward to this great new covenant, this after the exile period. And this is one of the reasons the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. Because while the old covenant may have at times had good shepherds, it many times had failing ones. But the new covenant, the people of God will have a shepherd who will not fail. God himself will come. God himself will come to be a shepherd. Then our third section, as I mentioned, is another section of judgment. It's verses 17 through 22. It seems like the poor leadership of the flock doesn't mean the sheep and the flock are without any responsibility for what's happening. Sometimes when we are in bad states, whether it's as a country or especially in the church, we look only to the leadership. They are at fault. And certainly that is the emphasis of the text. But God says he, when he comes as a shepherd, is going to have to judge against the sheep and the other sheep, the goats and the rams. It kind of sounds like what Jesus said he would do. And he will separate the sheep from the goats. When God comes, it's going to have a purifying effect. It will destroy the bad sheep. It seems that the people following their shepherd's bad example were abusing others, taking advantage of those they could get advantage over. Now the final section, until the light of Jesus Christ dawned, would have been quite perplexing. This final paragraph would be so confusing because the beauty of this promise is that we're going to be scattered, but God is going to come for us. God will be our shepherd now. And the final thing he says is, and I will set a shepherd over you. I will set David over you as a shepherd. Of course, speaking of a descendant of David. That in this new paradigm, this new world, this new history they're walking towards, evidently, even though Israel is destroyed, the temple is destroyed, the kingdom is destroyed, there will be a role for the Davidic king in that new universe for God's people. But now they've been promised a man will shepherd them. So who's going to be the shepherd? God himself or the descendant of David? That's the tension that would have been brought here. Right? It's, it would have been hard enough to understand, well, how will there be a Davidic king after the exile that's been destroyed? But even harder would be this apparent contradiction within verses of each other. The promise that God will be their shepherd and the descendant of David will be their shepherd. But we know the answer to this question. We know the answer to every paradox. We know the answer of salvation because it was revealed to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the son of God, the descendant of David. And if you'll look with me in closing, I want to read where Jesus Christ announces who he is and what he's come to do in John 10. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand is not the shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolves coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice so that there will be one flock and one shepherd. I myself will come for them. Jesus says, I am the shepherd. I am coming for the sheep who are scattered. I pray that you, too, hear the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we look forward to the day when he has won. I was telling my children this on the way, so I'll tell it to all the children here. I know sometimes it can be hard to listen to an adult talk this long, especially when they're dressed like this. But I have one point today. There is one thing Jesus is telling you to do, and for the benefit of the adults, you can hear that too. I have one point today. There's one thing Jesus is telling you to do. So, kids, if you can tell me afterwards what that one thing is, that would be great. Our text comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. It's on page 814. I'm sorry. And remember, one thing. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. Would you pray with me for a moment? Heavenly Father, we thank you that the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is so fruitful that it's bearing fruit today. We pray that as we hear your word today, we will engage in the ministry Jesus Christ put the earth, the church on earth to do. We pray that this word will be encouraging to us and glorifying to our Son. We pray this in the name of our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. What would God do if he showed up? What would that be like? It's easy for many of us to answer that question because we already know the answer is Jesus. Whatever Jesus did is what God would be like if he showed up. That is the right answer, but the question is profound. And yes, Jesus Christ is the surprising, satisfying, and sometimes perplexing answer to that question. I do really think this question is relatable for people even today in the secular West. 
What do you think God would do if he showed up? There are lots of stories about God coming in various veiled forms, disguised in one way for one reason or another. Because I do believe people wonder, what if God was one of us? However, there is a more specific question the Gospels are answering. The Gospels are answering the question, what happens when God becomes man? What are the results of that? Of course, the Gospels tell us God did walk among us, gives us evidence that Jesus Christ is the Savior, that he's the Son of God, he's Emmanuel, God with us. But the looming question on every page of the Gospel is, what is he coming to do? The previous two chapters of Matthew 8 and 9 give us a very clear picture of what God being incarnate makes happen. Matthew's Gospel draws our attention to another kind of question. What kind of disciples will God create? For the early church, this was a pressing question for the readers of Matthew's gospel because Jesus comes to the people of Israel. But it's quickly evident, if you've read the gospels, not everyone is on board to follow Jesus. The belief they had in God did not match the God that was revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. The God they believed in is not the God Jesus proved to be. Jesus came with a very clear mission on earth, and it was not the program many people wanted to follow. God was working a salvation, but we see people over and over again complaining because it's not the salvation they want. I don't know that today is much different. Jesus Christ has come to save you, but he's come to save you from something and to something. Our Christian lives are to be shaped and transformed into the image of Christ for the sake of his mission and purpose. So the question for Jesus' disciples and for you today is, how is your life and desires being transformed and conformed into the image of Christ? This morning, we specifically will be looking at prayer. Your personal communication with God is to be shaped by Jesus Christ's purpose and mission on earth. We learn our prayers are to be more than just a wish list of our needs and concerns. We are called to pray. We are called to pray to God to send workers, to evangelize, to be missionaries into our communities around the world? Are we asking God to release this kind of power? Are you asking God to release this kind of power? Because all who call Jesus Christ their teacher must know his concern for the lost and dying world. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus Christ loves his sheep and laid his life down for them. And his love is designed to transform you and your prayer. In our text, the Lord teaches us to pray like him by having his vision, by having his heart, and following his instructions. Because God in Christ is bearing so much fruit, we should accept the invitation he's given each of us to participate. So first, we need Jesus' vision. 
Verse 35 summarizes the ministry of Jesus up until that point. It's actually much like an old saying you used to hear here in the American frontier and further west. The settlers would say, well, there's, when there was really bad weather, they would say, well, there's nothing out today but crows and Methodist preachers. See, in the frontier, they were describing these Methodist missionaries called circuit riders. Maybe you know, maybe you don't, but there were these men that ministered in the frontier from the early 1700s into the 1800s. In fact, you can still see the results of their ministry in all these tiny towns across the Midwest. There are lots of bedroom communities today that have nothing but houses, a bar if it's in Wisconsin, and a Methodist church. Ministry to these communities was not easy. 95% of people in America at that point lived in a place with less than 2,000 people anywhere near them. And the Methodists determined the best way to minister to these people was by traveling horseback to preach. They would create this circuit, hence the name, that was usually 200 to 500 miles wide. And they were expected to be in each location once a month so that the people could at least expect to hear a sermon from a minister once a month. Of course, they were also supposed to find people who could fill the pulpit when they weren't there. They preached typically every day of the week and met with small groups. And four times a year, they were supposed to organize a revival, right? They wouldn't be Methodists if they weren't doing that. This was a grueling pace. To get this far by horseback, they had to ride at least four hours a day. So they were always riding, no matter the weather. That's why there was the saying, there's nothing out today but crows and Methodist preachers. Looking at the pace of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, the same thing could be said of him. Chapters 8 and 9 move at a breakneck speed, recording Jesus' itinerant ministry in Galilee. And it's interesting, and perhaps no surprise, he describes himself as the Savior with nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was something of a circuit rider. Jesus shows up and he heals. He visits Peter's home that evening to heal his mother-in-law. He boards a boat the next morning, calms a storm, and then confronts two demon-possessed men living in caves. He travels back home to teach in his hometown. He heals a paralytic. He goes and finds a tax collector before attending a dinner party at his home that night. This is the speed at which the gospel is telling the story. And it all comes and is summarized in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. So back to our question, what happens when God comes and is one of us in human form? He comes for all the lost sheep. He ministers to every city and village. Jesus Christ was not waiting somewhere for Israel to get its act together and come find him. He didn't require the sick to seek him out. He went and found them. He is teaching, preaching, and healing. He must teach them so they understand the scriptures testify about him. He must preach to them the good news of his kingdom that it's here and confirm the kingdom coming through his miracles. What was broken between God and man is changing now. That's over. The day is beginning. 
the, de the decay of sickness and illness will be reversed. Truth is here. Salvation is accomplished and offered. And in all of this, in how busy our Savior is, he sees the crowd. Jesus sees the world. And his disciples must learn to see it the way he does. We must learn Christ's vision, get his glasses, if I can put it that way. Jesus Christ was an eyewitness to every kind of sickness and suffering imaginable. And in the first century, sickness was not a clean or pretty thing. And he doesn't shrink back. There was nothing too gross to be brought to Jesus. And clearly, there was no person too far off to be touched by his grace if he will go find demon-possessed men living in graves. So what do you feel when you see these kinds of people, when you experience this kind of suffering? It, this isn't a very hard test, really, because there's no shortage of sinners who are lost and suffering people today. There are millions of Muslims today. There are many unsaved Americans at your door. There is a homelessness crisis, a mental health crisis, people destroying themselves in many ways through substance, fentanyl. There are lonely people dying in nursing homes. What do you see? If we're honest, we're more likely to take pity on ourselves for having to live in a world like this or be reminded to lock our doors, or be reminded maybe there are things I can do to avoid that kind of fate. Well, pastor and theologian J.C. Ryle believes seeing the lost the way Jesus Christ did was the beginning of having the mind of Christ. Quote, there are thousands of unsaved near our doors. Do we feel tenderly concerned about their souls? Do we deeply pity their spiritual destitution? Do we long to see that destitution relieved? These are serious inquiries and ought be answered by each of us. It's easy to sneer at missions to the heathen and those who work for them, but the man who does not feel for the souls of unconverted people can surely not yet have the mind of Christ. So when we think of how bad things have gotten for people like you and me, the vision of Jesus Christ will not teach us to look at the crowds in horror, but as an opportunity, not an obstacle. This is how all the great missionaries of the world learned to see the world. They saw a lost generation or country or tribe as a wide opportunity for the gospel instead of a set of obstacles they had to overcome. Few missionaries epitomize this zeal as the man who was called the apostle to the Germans. His name originally was Winfred. He was a Benedictine month in the late 600s. He joined a monastery as a young man before he was sent as a missionary and given a new name to do it. The Pope named him Boniface. He was given a difficult calling. He was to minister among the scariest, most lost people on earth, the Anglo-Saxon Germans. One of the darkest places anyone could imagine going at that point in history was Germany. These people were hardened pagans, stubborn, and dedicated to the gods of Norse mythology. These pagans treated anyone outside of their tribe as subhuman. Therefore, they could rob them for what they needed, murder them, pillage them. 
And they believed the gods they were devoted to gave them power to do all this. And so they tattooed their bodies for the sake of Thor and Odin. I would not take this call. It sounds terrifying. But Boniface thought differently. He reasoned that their devotion to Thor would provide him an opportunity to prove Christ was more powerful. And if they were so dedicated to a God with no power, what would they be like if they saw the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one with all authority in heaven and on earth? And so he took the call knowing there was no spirit, no demon, no God. Jesus did not triumph over. He quickly learned one of the great shrines of their religion was the Oak of Thor. There they made sacrifices, even human sacrifices, to the God of Thunder. And they believed Thor would strike with lightning anyone who touched his tree. Boniface reasoned, I should chop it down. And quickly, a group of people gathered because they were going to watch a foolish Christian get struck by lightning. Instead, the tree fell. And instead of being entertained by his death, these hardened pagans learned who Jesus Christ was and were baptized. Boniface had such a fruitful ministry, he recruited 52 other monks to begin systematically starting monasteries and churches throughout the Anglo-Saxon world. And he kept pressing further and further into the dark forests of Europe until he entered glory when he was found and killed by an unconverted tribe. The entire European continent was changed because of men like him. And it began, you could say, with one oak tree being chopped down. So what do you see today? Do you just see directionless, directionless youth? Do you see degradation of society? Do you see the problems in schools, the poor? Do you see the unreached nations who are kind of a threat to your way of life? What do you see in the fatherlessness, single mothers, the abused? What do you see when you think of depressed young men? Do you see the opportunity? We need to learn to see these crowds the way Jesus Christ did, as a place where his power can be evidenced. Secondly, though, we must see Jesus Christ's heart to these helpless sheep. Jesus Christ sees the crowds and has compassion on them. This English word, compassion, is actually a somewhat difficult word to translate from Greek. The English translators aren't bad at their job. They're just really in a bind. Because the word literally translated would mean Jesus was moved in his bowels. In the ancient world, the intestines were actually thought to be the seat of love. They talked about their intestines the way we talk about our heart. So maybe that we could translate it something like this. When Jesus saw the crowds, his gut reaction was affection. And the New Testament writers do something else very unique with this word. This word in the New Testament is only ever used to describe Jesus or is used by Jesus in one of his parables. It's never described, used to describe the love between men. This is not human emotion or sentiment. This is divine compassion. This is the love of God. 
the love of God that sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world. This is the compassion of Jesus Christ, whose grace and mercy moved himself towards sinners. This is Jesus' love for you that moves him towards you with grace and mercy, that moves himself to you in your mess. He loves you, and he knows you can't save yourself. Because we are like the crowds, harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Shepherdless sheep, one thing's for sure, they're in trouble. And especially sheep that have been wounded by a predator or have fallen into thorns, they're left unable to walk, they're defenseless. They are in great danger, and they have no ability or resources to fix what's happening. This is the position sin and the fall have left us in. We are certainly distressed by the fallen world. And we ourselves are in an unsalvageable state because of our own sin. You see, sheep don't pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Injured sheep need a shepherd who can put them on their back if necessary to bring them back. As we have already discussed today, the image of sheep and shepherds is throughout the Bible, and the image of shepherdless sheep would have been very familiar to them in their agrarian culture, and it's again also throughout the Old Testament scriptures which they would have known. The first place we see this kind of language used for God's people is in the book of Numbers. Moses prays a prayer to God when he learns they will be entering the promised land without him, that he will die before they enter. In Numbers 27, 16 and 17, he prays this. Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. God graciously grants this request. Joshua leads the people into the land. And think about it. God grants this request even though he's present with them in the tabernacle. God isn't away from them. He's with them. He's giving them inspired words by the prophets. But we see God intends his people to be led personally. This is the paradigm for God's people. The end goal of Christian discipleship is not that you will be a self-taught, self-sufficient, self-feeder who needs no one else to grow in their Christian life. No. The paradigm for God's people is sheep who submit to the nurture and leadership of the shepherds God rightly placed over us. Of course, this imagery comes up over and over again but it now comes up describing where the people are. When they have no righteous king, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And this problem is so significant. Why? Because if the paradigm for God's people is being sheep following their shepherds, if they have no faithful shepherd, who can they submit to? This is why the promise from our reading in Ezekiel is so glorious, that there will be a future shepherd coming they can follow who will lead the people and not leave them without a shepherd anymore. We see Christ's compassion here guided by the word of God. Actually, that isn't quite the right way to say it. All of the words of Scripture come from Christ and are about him. 
So it's not that Jesus needed to think about, oh, God loves his people like a shepherd does a sheep. But he is God. So he has the same motivation and heart and compassion. He embodies it. So Christ's compassion embodies the word of God. This is the astounding new reality. Jesus Christ, unlike Moses or the kings or the priests, is God himself as a shepherd. Jesus Christ is the shepherd who's come to make you lie down by green pastures. Jesus Christ can lead you beside still waters. Look at the ministry he has in the Gospels. He's a good shepherd. He can teach you. He can restore your soul. He can lead you in the paths of righteousness. Jesus Christ sees the sinner, has love for them, like a shepherd does for a sheep. And all this brings him to the one instruction he has for his disciples. Kids, he has one instruction for his disciples. He says this, The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send labors into the harvest. There is such simplicity in the Christian life. What the world needs from Christ's disciples is not most of all your money, your advice, your help. It's your prayer. All of Jesus Christ's disciples can have share in this ministry. All of God's people can participate in missions in the precise way Jesus Christ says matters most. How do moms with little people at home reach their communities? They pray. How do people shut in by health take the gospel deep to the unreached world? They pray. The work, the most important work of missions is not limited to a special few people who we cheer on and support. No, it's something Jesus Christ has called each one of us to. Prayer. But like everything else in the Christian life, this takes faith. Because it takes you admitting, I can't change anyone. But God can. As hard as it may be to believe, even moms can't change anyone. No matter how much good they want for their children. But God can. In prayer by faith, we give up control deciding what ministry will be like or where it will happen or what the fruit will look like. And we offer that control to God. The desire for missions to happen, children to possess faith, evangelism to occur in our communities are truly good desires. But we must be careful not to pursue God's promises according to the flesh, meaning relying on our own efforts, understanding, or plans. Americans around the world are known as problem solvers, so this is a problem for us. The prerequisite for any true missionary activity is earnest prayer by the people of God. So, if there will be more churches in Wisconsin planted, if your neighbors will be evangelized, if new missionaries will be sent to new missions field, it must begin with prayer. To pray like this, we have to become a certain kind of disciple. Again, when we are saved, 
we are made a disciple. We become Jesus Christ's apprentice. And this apprenticeship has a specific shape. Our lives as God's people are to be directed in the same direction Jesus' ministry was. And so, our earnest prayer is to be for laborers. We are to learn from Christ's vision, to have his mind, and learn from his love what Jesus loves. God is conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ today if you believe in him. But often there are parts of who Jesus is and what he was doing we ignore. So if our Christian lives lack vitality, if you lack assurance, or if you struggle in prayer, perhaps the first question is, what parts of Jesus' discipleship am I ignoring? Today, the text says, pray for the mission of the church. The term prayer here is, again, not the usual one used in the Bible. It is sometimes used to describe prayer, but it's most often described an activity we would describe as begging, requesting. This word is used to describe how the demons begged Jesus not to destroy them yet. The leper begged Jesus to make him clean. The man with the demon-possessed son begged the disciples to cast it out. This is the word here used for prayer. So the sincerity, the urgency of those in need of healing should characterize how we pray for laborers to be sent to the harvest. It's not something casual or we do occasionally when we remember. These people were praying to Jesus for something that had all of their attention. They understood the seriousness of their need and knew the only hope I have, the only answer, the only person who can help me is Jesus. And so Jesus, as he tells us to pray, He gives us two reasons to pray with that kind of urgency. First, he says, because there is a plentiful harvest. Second, because there are few laborers in it. When Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, he means there's plenty of ministry to do right now. Again, the last two chapters demonstrate this. Jesus had ministry to do in every single village. Crowds were following him wherever he went. Notice, Jesus does not say, Pray that there will be a harvest. Pray that there will be an opportunity for ministry. No, the harvest is already plentiful. The incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ was an infinitely fruitful act. God's overflowing goodness never lacks fruit. We might ask, though, honestly, what if it seems like there isn't really a harvest? Because if we're honest, we seem like we live in a day where people aren't very open to the gospel. Everyone knows church attendance is dropping. Understanding of the Christian faith, by all accounts, is at an all-time low. It seems like every successive generation is less spiritually inclined than the one that came before. We can recognize there are times and places where people are hardened to the gospel. This was, in fact, something the early church faced. There's this really big shift in the book of Acts, especially in Paul's ministry. Paul is a Hebrew scholar. He is a Jew, par excellence. And he spends the beginning of his ministry in Asia Minor reasoning in Jewish synagogues why they should believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's obvious to him, this scholar, and if he presents it to people, they should respond. But something changes in Paul's ministry in Acts 13. Opposition to him from the Jews has been growing, and this is what Acts 13 says, starting in verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Paul knows there is a great harvest, but at that time it was not going to be amongst the Jews. It was not going to be amongst the people Paul was most like or knew the scriptures the best. Paul did not give up when he saw opposition to the gospel, but he turned to the Gentiles. And the harvest Paul found among the Gentiles was so great he could not exhaust it in three missionary journeys across the entire world. Perhaps we see a lack of harvest because it's not the one we have planned. Perhaps the harvest will not be amongst those who are like us. We may feel like there's no one in my workplace or family who wants to discuss spiritual things. But the other reason this might be true is not because there is no harvest amongst these people, but because there is a deplorable lack of evangelism. Perhaps we are just as hesitant to discuss spiritual things as our neighbors and co-workers and family members are. This is the second reason Jesus Christ says we must pray. We must pray God will send laborers into the harvest because there are so few going to work. This is a question you get a lot when you start planting a church. Here it is. Aren't there already a lot of churches here? And in fact, this question should have been asked to Jesus when he said this. By all accounts, if there was one thing Israel did not lack in the first century, it was religious leaders. There were lots of priests. There were Levites. There were synagogues and rabbis. There were Pharisees. Yet Jesus Christ said there are few workers. And it's true, we see ministries pop up every day. There are historic church buildings in most downtowns. There are mega churches that are full of people. Seminaries full of students. But there are few laborers. Seminaries can give master's degrees. Churches can elect elders. Churches can pay ministers. But only the Holy Spirit can raise up workers. Only Jesus Christ can hire laborers for his harvest. This is why we must pray. Because we could hire a reverend and still not have a pastor. A church could have a full session and not have a single elder. Israel had plenty of teachers and Pharisees, but few workers. And Jesus Christ says, you will only get them by prayer. I fear we might be in the same place today. But even if the church was very, very healthy, even if we were surrounded today by faithful pastors, discerning elders, wise deacons, passionate evangelists, committed missionaries, 
they would still be few. Because the incarnation is an infinitely fruitful act. The harvest is that great. The Lord of the harvest is always hiring. The Lord Jesus Christ and the work of his spirit is bearing fruit today. Jesus has more fruit than we have hands to collect it. So, we see what happened when God walked among us. But it doesn't answer the question quite, does it? What, if it, what would it be like if he were with us today? What would it look like? Well, the answer is we have an answer. It looks like his laborers. Jesus, in the gospel, is about to call his disciples into ministry. He is going to enlist them. He is planning to continue his ministry through giving some of his authority to the disciples and then to the church. Jesus, as a man, was only in one place at one time, but by his spirit, he will be present wherever his laborers are. He will be among them. So what the world needs most from us is our prayer. Because what the world needs most is what only Jesus can give. So do you see the crowds? Do you know Jesus' love for you? Then pray for laborers. And perhaps if we learn to view prayer for laborers this way, we really will. We pray for his laborers not primarily because we want a pastor, but because we want Jesus to be among us. Amen. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus Christ, send laborers to the harvest. Thank you and praise the Lord Jesus Christ that he is bearing fruit on earth. Please, Lord, allow this church and the churches of Wisconsin and the PCA to be sent laborers. We ask that in these labors we will get glimpses of our Lord. We thank you that you will have not left us alone like sheep without a shepherd. We pray that the harvest will be great to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ.